instead of getting upset when something goes wrong, I almost revel in it because I see the direct connection between these disasters and being me. Getting discomfortable with the AJ tax. As you may or may not recall, I am nomadic, and I have been for the last year and a half. That means I have no home. I basically just travel from city to city because, as a writer, I can work anywhere. This all began a couple years ago when I joined a program called Remote Year. Remote Year is basically like summer camp for adults. It's a kind of a travel company for professionals or quote unquote digital nomads. They basically create an itinerary and bring together a large group of remote workers. In my case, it was about 50 of us. And you all travel together to a different city each month, living in different groupings of those 50. And it really was an incredible year. As I was traveling, one of the things that struck me was how little I missed all my stuff. I discovered pretty quickly that my idea of home was really easy to achieve. Basically, if I want to feel at home now, I have to do just a few steps. For me, a comfortable home means I have my own bedroom. It doesn't have to have its own bathroom, but if it does, that would be the most amazing addition. For years, I loved living alone. I thought that I didn't like being around other people and I needed lots of privacy. But on remote year, I discovered that as long as I have my own bedroom, because I still do require a lot of privacy, but I love to leave my bedroom and there are people that you can interact with. So part of the program is that you get to request people that you want to live with from the 50-person group. But I decided never to do that because, to me, it was always an interesting challenge to live with someone who I may not have wanted to or may not have naturally gotten along with. It was an opportunity to challenge myself and be like, okay, what's it like to live with this kind of person? What's it like to live with that kind of person? And on remote year, you only ever lived with people for a month. And I've discovered that you can pretty much put up with anything or anyone as long as you know it's only for a month. And there were people from all different cultures, different genders, different age groups. So it really was a fascinating opportunity to get to know different types of people and to experience what their life is like. But just for one month. So my process for creating a home is that I take my private room and first... I have to unpack. I do, not, I do not understand those people, and there were many of them on remote year, who never unpacked. They would just have a suitcase overflowing in the middle of their room. To me, that is not a home. I have to unpack my suitcase and organize everything. I have to put everything in its place and tuck everything away and, and make it all clean. That is the moment that it feels like I own that space, that that space is now my home, even if temporarily. The other thing that really helps is music. I found that my sense of comfort often came from playing music that made me comfortable. So much about what makes a home a home, I think, is about comfort. And for me, the things that bring comfort are quite simple. A, a, a flickering candle gives me comfort. 
certain types of music that I am familiar with, that I know I love, that brings me comfort. And feeling like I'm organized brings me comfort. And that's really all I need to create a home. As long as I have my laptop, I can pretty much go anywhere and feel at home within about an hour. And it made me realize that that I didn't need all that furniture I had back in Toronto. I didn't need all my art. I mean, I love all that stuff, and I like the furniture, and I love to design a space. But it's really not necessary to feel comfortable. One of the downsides of constantly traveling is that I am constantly <laughs> flying, and flying is such a disaster. I'm the kind of person who easily gets stressed out and the airport is a common source of stress with me. My ex-boyfriend used to always get so annoyed because I would, I would want to be at the airport like three hours early. I just can't relax until I know for sure that I'm at the gate or even on the plane. But lately, I've been using a new micro-ideology to deal with this kind of stress. I call it the AJ tax. It's the tax that I pay to lead the life that I want to have and be the person that I want to be. It's essentially a version of gratitude. The AJ tax is the awareness that I have chosen a peculiar life, but I've chosen it because I really like this life. And on top of that, I've done a lot of work to learn to love myself. I mean, the AJ tax as a microideology only works if you actually love yourself and enjoy your life. And that as you probably know if you've listened to my other podcasts, has not always been the case. But since I've demystified the messages of shame and worked really hard to find a sense of unconditional love for myself, which I talk about in my shame series in episode 6, The Fatal Flaw, I've discovered that I love a lot of aspects of life and that all of those things that I love are actually a reflection of me. The things I love are a form of self-love. So even though they seem external, they're always based on a relationship. I don't just love that person in isolation. I love that person in a relationship with me. Everything that I love is predicated on my own viewpoint. So it's just as much about me as anyone else. And once I've embraced that sense of self-love, then every time I make a mistake or some kind of disaster befalls me, or I do something really stupid, or my flight gets canceled and I have to sleep overnight in some place, or my luggage gets lost, or, you know, all number of disasters that come from living the peculiar nomadic life that I live, I have to chalk it up to the AJ tax. If, if I wanted to avoid those kinds of mistakes, disasters, and stresses, then I wouldn't be me and I wouldn't be living the life I want to live. So I have to embrace them. I have to say, well, this is super stressful and bad, but if I didn't go through this, I wouldn't be AJ and I wouldn't be living my life. And I love me and I love my life. So I'll pay the AJ tax. It's just a nice little reminder to be grateful. And it's really just an attitude adjustment. Instead of getting upset when something goes wrong, I almost revel in it. I'm like, oh, that's the AJ tax. Because I see the direct connection between these disasters and being me. You can't have one without the other, so you might as well appreciate them. I'm sure there will be a time, perhaps in the near future, 
where I will want to settle down in one place and really make it my own again. But right now, I'm really, I'm really enjoying traveling. But perhaps more than enjoying traveling, I like the freedom that comes from not being locked in one place. The thought of living in one apartment all the time, year after year, scares me right now. It feels claustrophobic. So I want to keep traveling until I'm so sick of traveling that I relish the chance to just be in my own apartment day after day, year after year. And I'm sure that time will come. But when it does, I hope that there's a way for me to continue to have community. Maybe my apartment has roommates, or maybe I make a much stronger effort to get to know my neighbors, or maybe I live really, really, really close to my friends. I just, I just really like having people around. And in fact, the more the merrier. Perhaps my favorite grouping was when I lived with seven people in one large house in Costa Rica. Seven was a perfect amount because when I wanted privacy, there were enough other people that they could amuse themselves. When you're only living with one or two other people, there's kind of a lot of pressure on you to interact with them all the time, or it's conspicuous. But when there's seven, there's always someone there who wants to socialize and someone who wants to work. So when you want to work, people leave you alone. But as soon as you're done working, you're like, hey, who wants to go to the beach? And there's always someone of the seven who's like, I do. So on my bucket list is spending some amount of time exploring different living situations that involve more people. Like I would love to live on a commune. I would love to live on a farm. I would love to live at a kibbutz. I'd love to try these alternative living situations because I might discover that that's actually the most satisfying way for me to live. There were even a few side trips I went on where I didn't have my own bedroom. I shared a room. Sometimes we even shared beds just to be economical. And in those situations, I found that I could still get the privacy I wanted with music. I would put my headphones in and basically just shut out the world and do my writing or, or meditating or whatever I needed to do. And the music was a way for me to signal to people that I'm off limits now. I'm in my private zone and I could get that recharge that I needed from being alone. In fact, I have a really interesting relationship with my headphones now. I used to be one of those people who was constantly listening to music on their headphones on the subway as I walked down the street, and I've discovered that listening to music on my headphones is kind of the opposite of mindfulness. I don't feel like I'm really living in the moment when I'm pumping different types of emotions and music into my ears all the time. Not only that, but it really cuts me off from connecting with other people. It's not that I'm constantly talking to strangers, but I'm completely isolating myself when I listen to music on headphones. I'm, I'm really, I'm taking myself out of the moment. I'm taking myself out of that reality. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes I need to create a sense of privacy so that I can really just be on my own. Or sometimes when I'm writing, it helps to create a sense of flow by building a wall of sound. I just drown everything out and I'm deep in my thoughts, focusing on ideas. And, and that's really helpful for, for creating flow and being creative. 
But when I'm actually trying to just exist in the world, I find putting headphones in is a real disconnector. Don't get me wrong, though. I do love music. Music is a source of joy for me. It's one of the most important things in my life, and it, it creates that sense of comfort that I need to feel at home anywhere in the world. But what I'm trying to do is listen to music more from a speaker, from an, an external source, so that I can still be present. But music is just part of that moment that I'm feeling present in. When I put headphones right in my ear, it, it almost transports me into the music. It, it takes me into a kind of fantasy where I'm in that song and it takes me out of the moment. But if that song is playing in the room, then it feels like I am present. So increasingly, I am listening to music on a Bluetooth speaker rather than putting my headphones right in my ear. So now when I'm walking down the street or when I'm on the subway or on an airplane even sometimes, I try to just exist with my headphones off. And it's surprisingly difficult. On the subway, like when it's really packed, it is extremely uncomfortable to be doing nothing. Everybody's either reading a book, looking at their phone, or listening to music. And what they are essentially doing is creating an invisible wall around them. But when you don't have your phone out or a book or even any headphones in your ear, you're kind of like alert and you're looking around and you can't help but just sort of look at people and look at details and understand the space that you're in and experience the moment. And it's uncomfortable because your urge is to reach out and connect with people. You kind of want to talk to people, but everyone else has walled themselves off from you. We, we are all really terrified of interacting with strangers. Like, let's just call a spade a spade. No one wants to talk to a stranger. I think the fear is that we are going to get trapped in a conversation that we don't want to have, or that we're going to get stuck talking to some crazy person, or that we're going to be embarrassed somehow. I remember reading uh, about a study, and I'll see if I can find it online, and I'll post it on discomfortable.net. The study showed that when they interviewed participants, they pretty much all agreed that if they were forced to talk to a stranger, they would come out of that conversation feeling less happy. And this gels with pretty much everything you read online, like that quote, hell is other people. The dominant cultural message is that being forced to talk to someone you don't know is awful, and, and we all kind of buy into that. But what this study showed was that actually the opposite is true. They created some kind of elaborate scenario where these participants, after being surveyed about how they thought they would feel after talking to a stranger, were then put in a situation where a stranger, who was actually a plant, started talking to them. And then afterwards, they measured their mood yet again, and they discovered that, in fact, in majority of the cases, the people were happier after they had talked to that stranger. Even just a completely inane conversation, it made people happier. And that makes complete sense when you understand that the thing we crave most as social animals is a sense of connection. We actually want to talk to people. And it's an interesting experiment. I, like, I really challenge you as a listener to go outside and walk around and go on the subway and not be listening to music or not be listening to this podcast. Oh my goodness. Are you listening to this podcast on the subway right now? Turn this podcast off. 
take the headphones out of your ear and just sit there, look around, see who might make eye contact with you. Maybe you can strike up a conversation. And I guarantee that after that conversation, you are probably going to feel better than you did before, contrary to your own expectations. Other people are not hell. Other people are everything. Connection is everything. The best things that I experience are always based on connecting with other people. And I think one of the biggest barriers to talking to strangers, for me, is the fear that I will have to be inauthentic. Inauthenticity breeds resentment, as we've discussed, and it's exhausting. Inauthenticity drains me of energy. And I've discovered, you know, people say that they're introverts or they're extroverts. To me, it doesn't really break down like that. It's all a matter of how authentic I can be. If I'm in a social setting where I can be fully authentic, I feel like I am gaining energy from that interaction. But if I am in a different situation where I feel like I have to be inauthentic, then I am drained of energy because I'm essentially performing. I'm, I'm kind of lying that whole time. So when we interact with a stranger, the fear is that they're going to say something crazy or they're going to be annoying, and we're not going to be able to be fully authentic about how we feel about what they're saying. Perhaps out of a sense of politeness or because we fear confrontation, for example. And this is so, so relatable to me. I am much more likely to be really honest and confrontational with people that I'm very close to. And if I meet a stranger who says something offensive, I'm less likely to confront them about that because in my mind, I'm like, who cares? I don't know this person. I don't owe them anything. They're a complete stranger. Why would I bother? But that breeds inauthenticity and that drains me of energy. So now I am trying not only to interact with strangers more, to talk to the Uber driver, to chat with the person next to me on the subway, or at least say a few words to the person on the plane. Like, I don't want to talk to them the whole time, but I do want to, you know, be friendly, interact, connect a little bit. In those instances, I am also trying to be as authentic as possible. I am trying to wipe all dishonesty out of my life. Because every time I am dishonest, it has an emotional toll on me. It builds resentment, and it undermines that sense of connection. I know that I haven't really connected with someone if I haven't been honest with them. They have connected with a version of me that I have constructed that isn't real. Deep down, I know that I didn't really connect with them. And this is the same reason why honesty and authenticity is so important in our most important relationships. If you're dishonest with your partner or your family or your friends, that lessens the feeling of connection that you have with the most important people in your life. It undermines the most important connections we have. And as social animals, those connections are the sources of the greatest feelings that we have in our entire life, like joy and belonging and validation and respect and community and love. Even white lies weaken connection. So when I tell people that it's bad to lie, it's not coming from a moral place at all. It's, it's not coming from, oh, you know, God says it's bad to lie, or my preacher says it's bad to lie, or the golden rule even. To me, lying and being inauthentic mean that I will experience less of the best feelings that I can feel as a social animal 
because deep down I know that I am not really connecting with people. I am creating an illusion and people are connecting with that instead. So when I interact with a stranger and they say something that seems bizarre or that I don't agree with, I'm just trying to be honest about that. And when I, when I am able to be honest about that, I enjoy the interaction more. Even if it's a confrontational interaction. I know that I stayed in my integrity, that I was aligned with my values, and that I was authentic. I was myself. And that's what's really important. And it's actually quite an empowering experience. It's almost like people can sense that honesty and they respect it. I've also had an interesting realization lately that the music I listen to affects my mood and my life way more than I ever realized. And for some reason, it seems that I'm like addicted to sad music. My whole life, I've been almost obsessed with movies. And to be honest, I think what I've always loved about cinema is how escapist it is. They take you out of your mundane, normal life, and they thrust you into a world of high adventure, high emotion, adrenaline, mystery, magic, and all perfectly crafted such that it takes you on this journey that ultimately ends with a satisfying sense of resolution. It's a perfect emotional roller coaster. In fact, a little too perfect. Normal life pales in comparison. And as a child, and even an adult, I think I was almost addicted to escaping into that kind of world, where everything seems heightened and more interesting. I think I do a similar thing with music. I find myself drawn to, and and almost addicted to, music that is really emotionally stimulating, and usually in a way that is sad or melancholy or really dramatic. I'm either listening to the soundtrack from Inception or I'm listening to sad classical music, both of which are taking me out of the mundane normality of my life and allowing me to feel sweet, sweet sorrow or heart-pumping adventure. But this puts me in a headspace that is completely at odds with what I actually want to be experiencing on a moment-by-moment basis. When I'm going out to socialize with friends, I want to be feeling excited and open and content. And if on the walk over to meet my friends at a bar, I'm listening to the soundtrack to Schindler's List, it's no wonder that I'm going to show up and have a sort of awkward, strange, morose night. I'm curating my own emotional mood in a really unusual way that doesn't actually fit with the kind of life I want to be living. One of my role models for a happy life is Julia Child, or at least the heightened version of Julia Child as portrayed by Meryl Streep in the film Julie and Julia. The film Julie and Julia is one of my favorite guilty pleasures, except that I can't stand the portion of the film that's all about the modern Julie as played by Amy Adams. 
So my friend Laura and I invented a version called Julia minus Julie, in which you fast forward through all of the Julie portions and just enjoy the delightful, ebullient fun of Meryl Streep's Julia Child. Part of the fun of Julia minus Julie is that you catch snippets, you, you catch glimpses of Amy Adams, and every time you do, it's such a jarring juxtaposition. It's The tone of that film is so off and so, so lopsided. It's so delightful when you're in France with Julia Child, and so pedestrian and dreary when you're in New York with Amy Adams. But it makes you appreciate the Julia Child portion more when you see those snippets as long as you don't allow Julie to take over. I just love that when Meryl Streep's Julia Child bursts into a room, she's authentic, she's herself, she's large, she's loud. Bonjour! That's who I want to be when I walk into a room of friends. I want to bring a lot of energy and a lot of personality and just be my big self. Bonjour! But how am I supposed to do that if on the way to meeting my friends, I'm listening to the soundtrack to The Dark Knight the whole time? Like as if I'm in some kind of intense adventure action sequence in which I might die at any moment. So I'm now looking for music that I can listen to that is happy. But I don't want, like, big band, high-octane party music either. I want just chill music, but chill music that, that is upbeat. I've, I've found that old-school jazz kind of accomplishes that for me sometimes, but really, I'm, I'm at odds to find music that is chill but fun, upbeat, happy, but still cool, not too cheesy or bland. So if you have any recommendations, please email them to me or comment somewhere, aj at discomfortable.net. I would, I would love to hear what you listen to when you want to be in a good mood. And there are certain songs or artists like classic era, Paul Simon, that, that makes me happy. And when I listen to that on, on the way somewhere, I actually do arrive feeling delightful. Bonjour! I have no idea if the real Julia Child was actually such a delightful person, but I'd like to believe that she was. And I don't think there's anything wrong from making your role model in life a fictionalized version of someone that you've never met. Meryl Streep is so delightfully over the top and yet amazingly real all at the same time somehow in that movie. It really is a perfect guilty pleasure film. It's, it's quite a delicate art, but I highly recommend that you, you and friends create your own Julia minus Julie. If you want to do this properly, you have to make sure that you capture the moments of Julia Child as she is playing on the television in Julie's house, as well as the Dan Aykroyd SNL sketch of Julia Child that also plays in Julie's house. Bonjour! 